If you have your Bible, you can open it to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2. We're going to continue our series. While you're turning there, I want to make you aware of a pretty cool opportunity we have as a church. A few years ago, I had the privilege of walking through a, a program centered around developing the Christian worldview through the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. And the program was the Colson Fellowship. And uh, it took a little bit of a commitment, but it was absolutely worth it. For me, it was formative. Um, it, it, it really formed the way I was beginning to think and process things, uh, how I would interpret what was going on around the world, and then how I would develop a response uh, that was appropriate for a believer. And so the exciting part is this, uh, that the Colson Fellows have now uh, become different cohorts around uh, the country, and we have the honor and the privilege of getting to host uh, the Indianapolis cohort of the, Christian fel- of the, of the Colson Fellows uh, this coming year, right now, this summer. And the cool part is you can do the same program that I did, and you don't have to travel. Uh, so that's kind of neat. Uh, and it's going to be right here at the church. There is a little bit of a commitment, but I'm telling you it is absolutely worth it. On top of that, uh, one of our members, J.K. Stevens, is actually the leader of the Indianapolis cohort of the, of the Colson Fellows. And he's here in the lobby all morning, can answer questions, get you information about what it looks like to sign up for that. Um, and so I would encourage you after the service, go check it out. Get some of that information, learn a little bit about what it might take, and, and if whether or not you're able to be a part of it this year. Uh, it'll continue after this year, but it's a really great opportunity for you to learn uh, what it's about today. So check that out. Let me pray for us one more time, and then we'll jump into God's Word this morning. Father, we thank you for your Word. We want to hear you speak. Father, we believe that when we open your Word, your Spirit uh, can feed us can nourish our souls. And so we ask you for that blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've missed the last couple of weeks, I would encourage you to get caught up, uh, mainly for the context for what the Apostle Paul is doing. He has spent the bulk of chapter 1 and the beginning seven verses of chapter 2 kind of setting the stage, so, so to speak. He does a really excellent job kind of telling us exactly what's wrong. He, he lays out this sin issue, and then he beautifully lays out the response that God had to our sin in giving us grace through Jesus. I don't know if you've been close to, or maybe somebody in the room is a doctor, but I've had a few friends of mine that are doctors uh, throughout my life, and so I contacted a few of them, and I asked them about one of the hardest parts of their job, and they agreed uh, one of the hardest parts of being a doctor is to sit with a patient and to give them a diagnosis, particularly if that diagnosis is difficult or terminal or going to be pretty severe. That's a very hard part of the job. And so I asked, how do you go about doing this? And there was different responses, but essentially it culminated with two main things. The first one was this. As a doctor sits to talk to a patient to give a diagnosis, one of the primary things on their mind is to be compassionate and caring. They want to display compassion They want to show this patient that they care. And the second thing they said is equally as important as displaying compassion is to provide precise clarity of the diagnosis so that the patient knows and understands what's going on and can respond appropriately. That's exactly what Paul has done in the book of Ephesians thus far. With a caring heart, he has sat down with the church and with precise clarity, he has offered a diagnosis of our problem. You're a sinner. And your sin has separated you from a holy God. And God, because of his holiness, cannot be around you because of sin. We have a problem. And more on that diagnosis is the separation that takes place between us and God will last for all of eternity because of this diagnosis of sin. 
So he's caring, but he's also very, very clear. And then he says, but that's God's love for us was so much stronger than that. They didn't leave us there. And he begins to display, hey, hey, God fixed this problem. He's offered you grace. And the grace that he's offered you is found in and only in Jesus Christ. And so understanding your diagnosis and understanding the response you need to make to to fix that diagnosis is extremely important. And Paul lays that out with clarity for us. And then, as we're going to study today, the Apostle Paul will say, okay, so here's what it looks like. He begins to describe and explain what it looks like after we take God up on his offer of grace. So we say yes to this offer, and the grace of God covers our sins. We we respond appropriately to that offer. And he says, now, let me explain to you what it looks like after that. Now, I don't know if that's anything that you've ever thought through. I think in my experience in the church, I became a Christian as a senior in high school. Senior year in high school, I can remember getting baptized into Christ. I remember being in a swimming pool in someone's backyard, and I, I go under, I come up, and I'm thinking, this is incredible. Now what? And, and not to any fault of their own, but the church's response was, well, now you're saved. Like, now, now your sins are forgiven. You're, you're a Christian. And I thought, okay, but like, what now? And there never was this solid, adequate answer. Maybe you've wrestled with that, because I think the church... And this is a good thing. This is not a critique. The church has done an excellent job explaining what we're saved from. Right? We are saved from the penalty of hell. We are saved from our bondage and slavery to sin. We are saved from driving down that foggy road and not understanding our purpose in life. And we're saved from all of that when we become a Christian. And when we become a Christian, God lifts the fog and gives us clarity about purpose. And, 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 he, and he saved us from the penalty of hell. And he saved us from the bondage that we are in to sin now. But in my experience, we haven't emphasized with the same clarity what we're saved for. See, we know what we're saved from, but what are we saved for? Now, normally that question's not asked that way to me. The question's usually posed more like, hey, what's my purpose? What is God's will for my life? What is God leading me to? Those are the type of questions that really are asking the bigger question, what was I saved for? Do you remember the story of Esther in your Old Testament? If you're you're not familiar with it, Esther is a fascinating story in the Bible. If you read through this story, uh, one of the fascinating things about the story is this, that God's name is never mentioned in the book of Esther. And yet he is on every page. I think it's an, it's an intentional literary uh, approach to writing the book. I think on purpose, Esther's name is not mentioned to force the reader to see God in the details. God working behind the scenes. God moving in and through everything that's taking place in the book. See, Esther is the queen to the Persian king at the time, who's really, in my opinion, just a sloppy character in the story. Just, just a mess of a leader. But she's married to him, and as she's married to him, there are certain things she can and cannot do. Well, there's this evil character in the story. I mean, the story has everything. There's this evil character who has a plot to destroy the Jewish people. His name is Haman. And he comes and he convinces the king, who again is our sloppy, irresponsible character, to issue an edict that would ultimately lead to the destruction and killing of all the Jewish people. The problem is Queen Esther and her cousin Mordecai are, in fact, Jewish. And so you have this story unfold back and forth, good and evil. Ultimately, Esther and Mordecai win the day. They expose Haman's evil plan for what it is, and it's reversed, and everything ends up the heroes win the day. But there's this moment in the story that's just fascinating. 
Esther is faced with a decision that she has to make. Does she act on this? And I don't know what she's wrestling with, but there's some hesitation on her part. A hundred years prior to the book of Esther, God's people had been liberated from uh, the Babylonian exile. And so there was many Jewish people that were living in freedom. And she might have been wrestling with, hey, why, why not me? Why am I stuck being married to this Persian king? She may have been scared because if you were to act when the king didn't want you to act, it would risk death. Yes, even the wife of the king would put her life on the line and risk being killed. She might have just felt ill-equipped and unprepared for what she was supposed to do. I don't know what she's wrestling with, but there's this moment where her cousin Mordecai recognizes the, the wrestling match that's going on in her soul. And he explains to her in chapter 4 of Esther, he says to her, hey, whether or not you make a decision to act and do the right thing, God's purposes will still be accomplished. And then in chapter 4, verse 14, he has this fascinating dialogue with her where he says to her, and who knows, but that maybe you've come to your royal position. Maybe, maybe you've been placed in this position for such a time as this. Maybe it's no mistake that you find yourself in this situation. Maybe it's not an accident that you've been given the influence and ability to act that you have been given for such a time as this. See, that's the way the Apostle Paul describes the Christian life. Maybe it's no accident. Maybe it wasn't a mistake. Maybe you've been placed where you are given the gifts, abilities, circumstances, and situations that you find yourself in for such a time as this. Let's see how Paul lays it out. Acts chapter 2, if you have your Bible. Again, I want to remind you, it will not appear on the screens. I'm trying to uh, encourage you to bring a Bible with you so you get comfortable opening up the Scripture. You can use a device. Or it should be on page 1006, I believe, Ephesians chapter 2, in the Bible that's in the seat in front of you. You can grab that. We're going to open up God's Word together. Here's what Paul writes as he continues to discuss the Christian life. He says this, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's a gift from God, not by works, particularly your works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So once again, and I don't think you can overemphasize grace. It's been repeated numerous times since we started our study in Ephesians. There's no such thing as overemphasizing the beauty of grace. But once again, Paul does make sure his readers understand you were saved by the grace of God. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you were, you were saved by grace through faith. And so that moment when you accepted the, the free gift that God, when you're lowered into a watery grave, raised up to walk in the newness of life, he says, nothing you did deserved that. You didn't earn it. There's no amount of willpower that you put into this process that made God want to save you anymore. You didn't do anything to get God's attention in such a way that he thought, I owe it to them. He says, no, you were saved by grace. It is a gift that was given to you that you did not earn, that you do not deserve. And part of the reason that you have to understand that it was grace that saved you is this. Paul says, so that no one can boast. Boy, do we not have a tendency to slip into thinking that somehow we deserve the things that we have. That somehow they're not a gift. And the more comfortable we get... With grace, the easier it is to believe that somehow we're living a life that deserves it. That's what happens to our hearts, naturally. You see this happen in your life all the time. The more you live with something, the more you take it for granted. 
the more somehow you believe that you're entitled to it. Paul says you have to remember that it's grace every day. I think the Apostle Paul might say it like Martin Luther did. Every day I preach the gospel to myself because every day I forget it. Every day I forget that it was grace, not works, not anything I did to deserve it. So the Apostle Paul reminds them once again that this is what happened. Then he explains what we're saved for. He says, when you become a Christian, God has saved you, and now he makes you his handiwork. You're his masterpiece. You are created in Christ Jesus when that union takes place, that now, because of the Holy Spirit's work in your life, you have the ability to live a life towards what God needs you to do to advance his kingdom. So you're able to do the works that God has prepared in advance for you to do because of your union with Christ, which is what we talked about last week. That's what gives you the equipping that you need to be able to do what God's called you to do. And he, he lays this out beautifully. That word handiwork is fascinating. It's the Greek word poema. And it was used in the ancient world in the Bible, but outside of biblical literature. It was used all over the place, this word, to describe the work of a master craftsman. So some skilled artist, somebody who had a gift and a talent that would fashion a piece of art in such a way that you couldn't escape recognizing the beauty of the work. Poema. And it was used to describe architecture, so beautiful Roman buildings and roads. It was used to describe uh, artwork, actual physical art. It was used to describe music. You know, when you've listened to a song and you can't help but stop and just marvel at how beautiful it is, this is a, the work of a master craftsman. Perhaps one of the most vivid examples would be uh, the artist Michelangelo's, his, his work on the statue that, we, uh, that was named David. And, and I don't have a picture of it, but maybe you've seen the picture of this. You can Google it later or right now. That's fine. But the, the picture is this beautiful picture. It took him three years to create it. And the work was commissioned originally to go on top of a building. I didn't know that until this week. But when the people saw the beauty of the work when it was finished, they said it can't go on top of a building. It needs to be down here where the people can see it and marvel at the beauty of its work. It's an incredible story. It's the same concept that Paul's communicating here. And while most of us don't have the build or the physique of a perfectly chiseled statue, though I gave some of you ammunition with that line there, we are still God's handiwork. It's hard for you to believe that, to actually hear it. And some of us, yeah, 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 I know, I'm God's handiwork. No, like, you're his masterpiece. If you're in Christ Jesus, you're a masterpiece of God because of the work that Jesus has done in and through you. I've only been to a couple museums in my life where you can walk around and see artwork. I've only been a couple times and didn't appreciate it when I was younger. But it, was, it is fascinating to me how when you walk around a museum and you see artwork after artwork, masterpiece after masterpiece, poema, poema, and you're looking at this and you're seeing the work of a master artist and you marvel at the gift that they had to create what you're looking at. Piece after piece, artist after artist, and it just wows you. And Paul's saying this is the same thing that should happen when the church gathers that we should walk around the museum of God's handiwork, looking at the lives of one another and saying, I can't believe the work that God's in. Wow. And rather than looking at like in a museum where you're walking through the museum and you're looking at a thousand different pieces of art commissioned by a thousand different artists, here at New Hope you would walk around and you'd say hundreds of different pieces of art, masterpieces that God is creating in Christ Jesus made all by the same master craftsman. And so as we walk around and we say, hey, I can't believe the masterpiece that God's doing through you as a teacher. 
to influence and shape the lives of students over and over, day after day. I can't believe the work that he's doing in your life as an accountant, someone who's having integrity and displaying that integrity in the way that you do your work. I can't believe, like, wow, the masterpiece of what God's doing in your life as he's sent you into the world of politics to bring a different pace and a different tone to such a a divisive culture that's around us. I can't believe the work that God's doing in your life as a stay-at-home mom or in the, the life because he's got you living in that apartment with those roommates. I can't believe the work that God's doing. It's just incredible the work that he's doing in and through you. Here's the point Paul's saying. It doesn't matter what circumstances you're facing right now. The situation that you're having to walk through day after day in your life, what Paul is saying is it's no mistake. God doesn't make mistakes. Who knows? Maybe God's got you in that moment with those people in that situation for such a time as this. For such a time as this. To have the influence, to make the difference, to make those decisions, to show people what it looks like to follow Jesus. Like Mordecai, warning Esther, whether or not you respond appropriately, God's purposes will be accomplished, but maybe he wants to use you to do it. Maybe he's given you the opportunity to do his good works in this situation and circumstance. Maybe it's your calling for such a time as this. See, maybe that's what we're saved for, to do God's good works. But, but why should we do it? I mean, I've wrestled with that. Why do the good works? Like, why take him up on the offer? Why let him use me to influence it? Why not get despaired? Why not get bogged down by the weight of the circumstance I'm up against and what I like and don't like about it? Why not feed into the drama? Why not create divisiveness? I mean, really, in our hearts, why? And there's three things that Paul really brings out in this text that we just read that kind of answer that question. Here's why you should do it. Not not necessarily what it's for, but like we know what it's for now. We're created in Christ Jesus. We are saved for God's work in the world to be his ambassadors, his representatives. But why do it? Why participate? Well, the first one is this, because you can. You've been liberated. Paul's words are, you've been saved by grace through faith. You now have the ability to do that what you were incapable of doing prior to your salvation. See, prior to being saved, God works around people. But when you become a Christian, he sends this helper to live inside of you, the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you, you're able to do what you were incapable of doing prior to that. Now God can use you to do works that he wasn't using you to do prior to doing that because he's able to live in and through your life. You've been liberated from the bondage of sin. What that means is you've been freed from the hold that sin had on your life, making you incapable of living the life God called you to live. So the first reason why you should participate in what God's calling you to do, the first reason why you should see your situation different than you've been seeing it is because he's given you the ability to see your situation different than you were seeing it before. He's given you new eyes. He's given you a new vision, a new way of looking at life, and you should take advantage of that liberation. The second reason, he says, is this, because you ought to. You have an obligation to obey him. This is where a lot of preachers get a little nervous, right? You do have an obligation. You were bought with a price. It cost God his son to save you. Not only that, there's really two reasons why. Paul says here that you were created in Christ Jesus. Created, meaning you're not the creator. You didn't do it. But if you trace that theme back in all of Scripture, you realize, like, no, God is the only one worthy of our obedience 
of our allegiance because he's the creator of all things. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It's all his. And because he's the creator, you have an obligation to obey him simply because he is the creator. No one helped him. No one else participated in it. He's the creator. Now, here's the fear that a lot of people have in talking about that is somehow it'll sound legalistic. Aren't we freed because of grace from having to obey the law? Well, it depends. If your obedience to what God's called you to do is based on your desire to earn God's favor, then yeah, that'll become legalism really quick. If, if all you do is obey because you're trying to earn your way, because you're trying to make God happy with you, then yeah, you've misunderstood his grace. And so it does become legalistic. Not only that, you begin to look at the way other people are living and you judge them. Well, you're not living the way that you should live because you have to live that way if God's going to be happy with you. And if you don't live that way, God's not happy with you. And I know it because I'm living that way. So I know God's happy with me. Or you burn out. And you've been trying so hard to earn God's favor and you just can't seem to live up to it. And so you just burn out. You're like, I'm done. I can't do this thing with Jesus anymore. And you walk away. Yeah, that's legalism. But it becomes a different question, a question of motivation. If you're obeying in response to what God has done for you, that can never be legalism. That's gratitude. Because in responding to what's been done for you, you can't help but be grateful for that which you have and you did not deserve. So now I want to obey the one who was so kind to me, the one who was so loving to me, the one who was so rich in mercy, full of love and grace. I want to respond to him appropriately. That leads us to the third thing. You, you should do these good works because of the motivation. You should want to do them. What motivates a Christian to work so hard at fighting sin and being good? What is it that's motivating your heart? What, if it, what is it that when you wake up each day and you're faced with those decisions, do I honor the Lord or do I do what I want? When those two things come into conflict, and here's the thing, sometimes they don't, sometimes they work well together. But when they're in conflict and you have a decision to make, when your Esther moment comes and you're not sure if you should obey what you feel led to do or you should retreat and do what's more comfortable, what motivates your heart? A lot of, in a lot of his writings, uh, author John Eldridge will talk about the motivation of the heart. And one of the things that I do appreciate about his writing is the way that he describes the motivation of both the masculine and the feminine heart. For the masculine heart, it really goes back to, and this question has just so helped my discipleship in Jesus. And so if you take notes, I would encourage you. I'll get the question up here in just a second. But you'll be able to trace this question. Guys, if we're honest with our lives, you'll be able to say, from, from my earliest memories, this motivated the decisions that I made. From my earliest memories, I can remember this motivating me to make choices and to do the things that I've done. And I can trace it throughout my life that a lot of my motivation was formed around finding an answer to this question. Do I have what it takes? Do I have what it takes? I mean, this is why we jump off ramps on our bike. This is why we fight in our siblings the way that we fought our siblings. This is why we, one of the reasons why we compete so hard in sports. We're looking for that affirmation. Do I have what it takes? Do I have it? We want it from our coaches. We want it desperately from our fathers. And then we actually pour it into our spiritual lives and we begin to seek God for the answer to this question. God, do I have what it takes? Do I have what it takes? Do I have what it takes? God, I'll show you I have what it takes. For the feminine heart, it's a little different. And, and ladies, I think I don't relate to this, but I think that this is pretty accurate based on those of you that I've had conversations with. From your earliest memories, you can remember wrestling with a question of whether or not you're approved. And so you remember early memories of the motivation of your heart being, do you delight in me? Do you delight in me? 
And it's motivated choices that you've made and, and things that you've sought after because you want that delight. And so you look for it in, in all kinds of different environments. I want to know that I'm delighted in. And God wired us this way. And so our motivations can get really thrown off if we're not looking to answer them in the right source. There's only one source to find that answer. And here's the thing. When you look for it, you realize I don't have what it takes. I don't. And scripture will line up with that. You don't have what it takes. And nothing that you search for in this world will show you that you are delighted in. Nothing. You can keep looking for all you want. It'll be temporary at best and continue to let you down. But then there's this message of the gospel that comes together, and it's grace changing how we answer those two questions. Grace changes it completely because we realize, I don't have what it takes, but what the person that did have what it takes and lived the life that it took gave me this gift. And the one who delights in me is the one who gave up his son to die for me. The ultimate form of showing me that you delight in me is that sacrifice. And so you have the answer to that question. Look at how it's described in Scripture Grace, this gift given to us, right here in our passage, salvation by grace is a free gift. In Romans chapter 4, Paul will say you can't work for it, so you can't prove that you have what it takes or you can't find the source of delight in anything else. You can't work for it. And in Romans 8, he says, and there's no penalty of hell for those who are in Christ. So being motivated by our fear and looking and scrambling for the answer to these questions in our heart, it doesn't work out for us. And so what is it that should motivate it? Toward grace, it's, it's, there's only one answer. It's, it's love. Love. A, a heart that's so grateful for love. Look at how the Bible describes the motivation being love. It says that Jesus told us in John chapter 14 that if you love me, you will obey my commands. You will live, you will be my handiwork and do my works if you love me. Not if you're scared of me. Not if you're motivated because you're worried about what I might do. If you love me. Well, how do we love God when we recognize how much he first loved us? It's grace. Paul affirmed in Galatians chapter 5 that when faith is expressed, it's best expressed with one motivation. He wrote this, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love, not fear, not earning, not working. It's faith expressing itself through love. In 1 Thessalonians, the apostle Paul wrote that the, the Christian life is a labor of love. He wrote these words, we remember before our God and Father your work that was produced by your faith and it was prompted or motivated by love. And then John wrote to the church in Ephesus, most likely, he wrote this, uh, the more we love, the less we work out of fear. The more love we have. So the, it's this process of growth in the Christian life. The longer I spend trying to be fascinated by how much God loved me, and the deeper I understand that love, the less fear I have living out what God's called me to live out. I'm not working because I'm scared of God. I'm working because every day I learn more and more about God's love. And here's the thing, you'll never arrive. You'll never be a master of understanding how loved you are in Christ. And that's the beauty of it. There's always more to grow in your understanding of his love for you. I've, I've always been motivated by this. And I didn't plan this, so I'm going to go over a minute or two, and Ben's going to get mad at me, but that, that'll be all right. I remember right before we moved to Illinois, we'd been married less than a year, and we had to move in with my wife's grandparents. Her, gran her grandpa's just a spiritual giant, and... Uh, He's, at the time, I believe he, he probably was in his 80s, late 70s, early 80s, and we're living in their house. And I, I woke up early before going into the office at the church I was working at as we're getting ready to move. And uh, I walk into the kitchen, and here he is sitting with his wife, and he's reading scripture. I'll never forget it. He's reading her the Bible, and the tone of his voice is what I'll never forget. 
He was reading the scriptures like he'd never read them before. He left for Bible college when he was 16. That many years, and he, he still just didn't, it wasn't enough. There was always more to go. And this is what Paul's saying. When, when you pursue understanding the depth of God's love for you, your motivation for obeying him will be pure because it'll be rooted in his love. Look, grace does not change our obligation, but it absolutely changes our motivation. We do not obey in order to be saved. We obey because we are saved. And there is no greater motivation for living a godly life than love. This is a picture of uh, Hans and Sophie Skoll. I think I'm saying the last name uh, right. The two, these two siblings, along with a, friends of, a friend of theirs named Christopher Probst, were convicted of treason and sent to the guillotine by the Nazis. Hans, the brother here, he led this movement uh, against, the Nazi, against the Nazi government, uh, and it started on the campus of their college. And on the campus of their college, they would produce these pamphlets. And the three of them, along with some other people, would begin to pass them out on the campus of the school uh, there in Munich. And then they would pass them out in the community around. And they were caught for doing this. And as a result, they were convicted. In a matter of four days, they were apprehended, tried, convicted, and executed within four days. Within weeks, other members of this organization that was called the White Rose were also apprehended and faced the same fate. Here's what's fascinating, though. These two siblings grew up in a very nominally religious home, not very devout. They left for college, and on the campus of their university, they developed a very deep and real love for Jesus. And their faith in Christ began to grow, and they began to recognize the depth of grace and love that had been given to them motivated them to act in such a time as this. One author described it this way. Here's how he described it. He said, Brother and sister began to find a place to stand, reading the scriptures in light of the challenges presented by their culture, having conversations with friends about the world and their place in it, meeting older, wiser people who offered them their time and their books. Together, they molded a vision about what was real and true and right. They drove drove them from the sidelines into what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called the tempest of living. Hans, the brother, was actually scheduled to meet with Bonhoeffer but never got to. On the day he was supposed to meet with Bonhoeffer, he was executed instead. But boy, he shared a vision that Bonhoeffer would write about and said, hey, motivated by love, we must do good works. Because like Mordecai, whether we like it or not, God's purposes will be fulfilled. But who knows? Maybe God has you in the place he's got you for such a time as this. So let me ask you, will you do the work of God? Will you be his handiwork, his masterpiece in your workplace? Showing your coworkers, your manager, or your employees what it looks like to live different? How about in your school? Because young people, God does not put a wait list on the age that's required to be his handiwork. So what about with your classmates, your teammates, everybody that you find yourself around? Will you live different and show them what it looks like to be motivated by the love that you have received in Jesus? What about in your home? Who knows, maybe for such a time as this, God's got you home for a season to influence your children, or God's got you uh, in, in a place where you're not living among other Christians, and he's given you the chance to represent him well. The question is, will you do it? Will you act? Motivated by the love that he has for us for such a time as this, recognizing we are saved by grace through faith, 
for good works, his masterpiece. So I want to pray for us. We'll continue to worship and use the rest of our service to prepare our hearts to leave this place and get to work. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the call that you've placed on all of our lives. I thank you that you do not make mistakes in your sovereignty and in your control and your power, God. You have orchestrated all things and invited us to participate. And we know that your purposes will be accomplished. And you've given us the free will to choose to be a part of your story. And so, Father, that's my prayer, that the rest of our service today will prepare our hearts to leave this place ready to respond to the love that we've received through the grace that you've displayed in Jesus. May we leave here different, ready to be your handiwork, your masterpiece, showing the world that they can believe that you are good and you are true. And we ask you for this in Jesus' name and all God's people said.